There we go. Welcome, everyone. I am truly honored. Thank you, Pastor Becca. Um, we will get to that part later. Um, but welcome. Yes, as Pastor Becca said, we, uh, we actually helped plant the Woodbury campus, and now we're at Crosstown. And I know I've spoken here before, so it's great to see all the friendly faces again and to all of the online and other campuses. This is something um, that God has, this topic tonight, God has been working on in my own life as well. And some of you I want to kind of speak to, you're probably wondering what the elephant in the room is. Why in the world is she dressed like she just got back from the gym, okay? All right, you're probably thinking she's a busy mom, and yes, I have three kids in high school, freshman, junior, senior, you can keep praying for me. And then um, you might be thinking, well, maybe she had a really cute outfit on and she was eating dinner in her car on the way over and it just went all the way down. And so I had to go to the lost and found in the youth group and this is what came. Or you might, you know, my husband does work at a college um, and so I'm just one of the college students so I decided to just put this on. All of that is probably true, you can say that. One, I did not spill anything, I was very careful, but for a long, long time for me, it was about picking that perfect outfit, right? About picking those really nice pair of shoes. But tonight I wanted you to see the real me. Um, as my background, I was in business for a while and then I had kids and I stayed home and I began um, my fitness journey. And so when the kids were really little, I had a mentor really pour into me and say, I think you would be good getting front, in front of people and just um, coaching them. And so the story goes, and I am, this is what I look like usually every single day, running from, from the gym to the college and to the home. So this world though, from a young age, always taught us just to be ourselves. I believe this was the best advice someone could give me. My awkward middle schooler who was too tall for her pants and too accident prone to play any sport, she just wanted to find herself. What was I supposed to do? Who was I supposed to be? The line of advice is great to find a good and healthy self-esteem, but I wanna approach this as I think we've taken it to another level. This obsession with self, the age of the selfie, to the point of a deep narcissism. Now, what is a narcissist? A person who has an excessive interest in or admiration for themselves. A narcissist who thinks the world revolves around them. Now it's good to develop a healthy sense of self, but what happens when that self never becomes challenged? You start to develop and believe that your truth is all truth. And then that truth is more important than anything or anyone else. Our culture says, just do you. We placed our moral and ethical decision-making on how do I feel instead of what the Bible says. Our me-first ethos feeds into our affirmation, right, of 
Instagram and Facebook, instead of trying to be ourselves, we begin to live for ourselves. And selfies have turned us in to selfish people. So now that we're all depressed, <laughs> oh, take a deep breath. We know the problem is out there. So how do we create a solution for ourselves so that the legacy we leave behind is one of humility? How do we humble ourselves to allow God to use us? Our theme for the semester was Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So number one, what is humility? The definition, it says it's freedom from pride or arrogance, a modest estimate of one's own worth. In theology, it says humility consists of a lowliness of mind, a deep sense of one's unworthiness in the sight of God. And ultimately, it's a submission of God's divine will. I love what Brennan Manning states. He said, humility is the stark realization and acceptance of the fact that I am totally dependent upon God's love and God's mercy. Humility is accomplished only by the hand of God. So I wanna go back into our Bible to a message, to a verse, to a scripture that talks about the Passover meal. And you guys are probably all well-versed in this. It was the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus had a feast and everybody was there but he got up from his place, he took a servant's towel, he took a basin and he washed his disciples' feet. He left the head of the table and moved to where the servants worked. This act of humility was probably one of the single most or single greatest acts of humility ever done in history. God himself, Jesus Christ, the teacher, the master, the savior of the world, washed the feet of his disciples and even the feet of his enemy. Now I can say I'm humble, okay? I can say, look at me, I, I dressed humbly tonight. I'm just in tennis shoes and a sweatshirt. And I can say I humbly do this and I humbly serve here and I humbly do that. But I wanna challenge you, humbleness is not just what we speak. It's what we do. It's what we model. And now, and Jesus showed this in the Passover. He was not just showing humility, he was meeting the physical needs of the people around him. He was washing their feet when no one else wanted to leave their spot. He left the spot. And secondly, out of this passage, I love this. He realized that the disciples didn't quite get why he was on earth yet. And when I read that, I'm like, what? They still didn't? No. Because if you knew what was happening at that Passover, when Jesus got up to go wash the feet, what were the disciples talking about? They were talking about who the greatest among them was. And Jesus understood 
that they quite, didn't quite understand. They were gonna have to struggle, as we all do, with a thing called the Messiah complex. They were talking about who the greatest would be. And Jesus was trying to show them that he came to serve. And if they were gonna be Christ followers, they were gonna have to humble themselves and serve. Now our culture says that we need to be at the head of the table. If you've ever been at a gathering and maybe with family, maybe with friends, who sits at the head of the table? Who sits there? We sometimes think we need to be there. Sometimes we desire to be there. And some of us think we deserve to be at that table, at that head of the table. And as long as we are all worried about who is at the head of the table, we have really little time to serve the people that God has called us to serve. The disciples were so insecure and so worried about who was at the head of the table and who was the greatest among them that they missed out on the single most important thing to serve the savior of the world. Jesus' story is so countercultural to, um, to us in the Bible. Jesus left his perfect home and came to earth in the form of a human just to lose his life. In Philippians 2, 6, and 7, it says, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. It was a riches to rags. It was so counterculture. To truly be great, you must move to the end of the table. And Peter heard and expressed this in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. In Proverbs 15, 33, humility comes before honor. In James 4, 10, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So now that we know what humility is, we've seen an example of what humility is. Why is humility important? This is probably one of the most, one of the hardest things to talk about because we are really proud people. We think we're humble. We wanna be humble. We wanna do everything right, but we're proud people and pride is the opposite of humility. One of my favorite authors, John Ortberg states, Pride destroys our capacity to love. Pride moves us to judge rather than to serve. Pride was not part of God's plan. Pride is this inflated view of who we really are. And when we start to get a distorted image of our own importance, we see ourselves as the center of the universe, that we lose touch of what God's plan and what God's purpose is for our life. Our egos become this blockade to what God has called us to do. In Proverbs 16, 18, it says, your boast becomes a prophecy of future failure. The higher you lift yourself up in pride, the harder you'll fall in disgrace. Gene Wilkes states, the difference between pride and authentic confidence is the source. He goes on and says, people who live in God's dream are not always the most flamboyant. They're not popular. 
and they may not be the most gifted people. But they are the people who have been humble enough to be shaped by God, who have developed the character to act on God's behalf. So some of you guys, maybe you're thinking, Linda, all right, I get it. Humility is important. But don't we need like pride in our work and pride in our ministry and like confidence and excellence and really, really have, you know, be a go-getter? And I would say yes and yes, because our God is a God of excellence. But pride by itself produces arrogance. So therefore, let pride be built on the character of God. Let it be built on God and give him all of the glory. Let him produce in you a quiet confidence. And for some crazy reason, as I was studying this, this was not part of my notes and I added it in, was the story of Esther. And God in a moment said, I don't want you to talk about Esther in the way everybody talks about Esther. And I said, you're going to have to give me a little more than that. <laughs> and he said, I want you to talk, start from the beginning. If you know Esther, Esther was picked from 400 women. She was the most beautiful, the most favored. Among the attendants, she was favored. She was lavish with perfumes and ointments, clothing, and finally a crown on her head. The, th the king threw her parties, but after all of that, there was still one man named Haman that, if you know the story, he plotted against his, her uncle and got the king to convince him to set out a decree that all the Jewish man, women, and men, women, and children would be killed. And Esther came from a humble beginning and had a choice. She knew what happened to Queen Vasti. She knew that if she came before the king without being summoned, she would die. But for such a time as this, I love that verse. She humbly came to the king. She had people praying for her. She did not come entitled. She had a crown on her head. She was given everything, but she came humbly and she didn't come direct. She didn't come all guns blazing. She actually came and invited him to a feast. And then they celebrated and she invited him to another feast. She was gaining trust, she was gaining favor, but I love that Esther was confident. But she even states, if you read this, and it kind of jumped out at me. It says, she states, even if her people were merely sold as slaves, she would never, never come to the king. But when they were being put to death, she had a conviction. She had a conviction like, nope, this is it. I'm drawing a line in the sand. I have to do something. And I love that Esther was confident. She was courageous. But what I love more is that she respected the role of her husband and the role of king. She submitted to his authority 
but she informed him of the injustices that were happening. You know, we as women are strong and courageous, but there are some who have lost respect for the position of their husbands. And I don't know who this is for, but we fall in love, we get married, we love, we love them in their unique quirkiness. We begin to watch our Hallmark movies and set high expectations for what a husband should be and do. And then we get frustrated when they don't lead the way we want them to lead. So we end up taking over. We take over control. You go do your job, your work, I'll take care of everything here. And for a long time, I even struggled with that. I said, I've got the house, I was a stay-at-home mom, worked part-time, you go do your thing, I'll do mine. And what I didn't realize was that I was pushing him out and not inviting him in. And I know this is going to hurt, but for some reason, I was even approached at the gym about something, is how do I get my husband to be the spiritual leader of my home? How do I do that? And as a Christ follower, follower and a wife, I needed to let my husband be who God has called him to be with no expectations. If you want a strong, confident, God-fearing leader of your home, then you have to humbly let go of control, pray for him, let him lead in the way God is telling him to lead, which may not be the same way you would lead. God has a purpose and a plan for them and they have a purpose and plan for me. And when you got married, that plan, those plans, that purpose become united. The great thing is, is when you let God produce that quiet confidence in both of you, you can humbly see alternatives to what our culture is saying. It's a different, God's calling us to a different culture. He's setting us apart. Marriage should look different. It's not in our own ability, but in God's ability to work through us. Humility opens the door in our marriages. Humility opens the door for God to work in our lives. In humility, we release control. God gives confidence to those who trust him with everything. From the beginning, Jesus was not out to honor himself, but to follow God's will. I love that he emphasizes in Luke 14, 8, he talks about another feast. When you're invited to the wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone more distinguished comes? Then you're going to have to get up and walk the walk of shame down to the other end. You're gonna, you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever is left at the foot of the table. But then, when your host sees you, they will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all your guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. He states again in Matthew 18, 4, Jesus says, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So now that we know what humility is, why it's important, how do we live it out? What does this look like? 
Humility requires the big S word, surrender. And I would probably add a second S word, surrender and serve. Sometimes it means you take a back seat. You get in the longest line. You allow others to zipper merge in front of you. That's a joke, yes, in Minnesota. Humility with our friends and coworkers requires us to stay silent and listen to the hurting and broken, to serve the needs of the widow and orphans. And to the introverts out there, God may be asking you to speak boldly for the injustices to those who can't fight for themselves. In our devotional and prayer life, humility looks like recognizing all that God has done and that he is in control, he gets glorified, and then becoming silent so that you can hear his voice and obey what he's calling you to do. Humility as a Christ follower starts with surrender and service. Romans 12:1, I encourage you to surrender yourselves to God to be his sacred living sacrifice and then live in holiness, experiencing all that delights his heart. We see humility in the Bible as being aware of your own sin and unworthiness and casting yourself entirely upon the mercy and the undeserved grace of God. If you want to partner with God in this world, then you're going to need to humbly lay down your life and you're gonna have to let him run it. Without humility, it's hard for God to have a place in our life. Our ego, our gifts, our talents, our skills, our abilities, they become our God if we're not careful. So for those out there that say, too much, Linda, I can't. I'm a perfectionist, I can't do it. It's just too much. We fear that if we humble ourselves, we would sacrifice too much trying to do everything people ask us to do. We fear we'll become stepping stones for others or worse, forgotten and taken for granted, for granted. Some of us fear that we're gonna be exhausted in doing good and Jesus says the opposite, Matthew eleven twenty eight. If we humble ourselves and learn from him, he will give us rest. So don't fall in to the number one killer of humility, comparison. God has already declared your worth when you were saved. And your story doesn't look like her story because your story is not supposed to look like her story. And in humility, you may say, I work with the two-year-old. It's a crazy job. I do it every Sunday in and out. She gets to greet or she gets to be on stage or she gets to do that and there is no snotty noses that she has to wipe or dirty diapers that she has to clean. But God says, I've got something for you and I've got something for you and I need all of us to work as the body of Christ. And that's what humility looks like. In Philippians 2, 3 through 8, it says, In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interest of others. Dare I say the two S's, surrender and service. 
Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And my famous author again, Ortberg writes, we know we've begun to make progress in humility when we find that we get so enabled by the Holy Spirit to live in the moment that we cease to be preoccupied with ourselves. About 17 years ago, and we're gonna close, I started my fitness journey. I bought the shoes, I got the outfits, I got the leggings, went to the gym, and met this one lady, her name was Lisa. And she was the most charismatic fitness instructor, trainer I have ever met. And she said, Linda, I see something in you. And I would love to mentor you to be a fitness trainer. And so I did. 17 years ago, I said I had little kids and it was a great way after three pregnancies in three and a half years to kickstart my exercise routine. So I practiced, I showed up, got the outfit, practiced some more, went through all my certifications and all of that. And I got my first class, fitness class to teach. Came an hour early and I was like, this is gonna be so good. I have practiced, I have done, it was great. First minute went by, the second minute went by, the fifth minute went by, 60 minutes went by, not one person showed up, not one. I had done everything right. But no one showed up. And in that moment, I had a choice. I could feel humiliated by the world's standards. I could feel rejected, failure, put whatever name you want to put on that. But this is what I did. I began to tell God, God, you told me that this is what you wanted me to do. You showed me this is what you wanted me to do. I didn't understand it at the time. My husband actually, God love his soul, he's like, are you sure? Because again, remember that middle schooler that was too long for her pants and very uncoordinated? But God said, I need you to do this. And he says, I want you to put on, and this is what Esther did, right? She humbly came, but she knew, I need you to put on that quiet confidence. Because I think, I think sometimes in our humility, we think we have to like wear rags and we have to like walk around like this and we can't look good. We can't, we can't um, walk with a confidence, like we have to be lowly. And God's like, that's not what humility is. Humility is not walking where your face is down and you're just serving everybody. Sometimes God calls us women to put on our spirit of stilettos, right? I'm not joking. And he says, I need you to walk in a confidence 
where you know your humility's there. I know your humility's there. I have seen that. But now I need you to step out and I need you to get dressed up in your finest clothes and I need you to do something for me. And that's where humility becomes, it's not this lowly, it becomes this quiet confidence that God is calling each of you in your realm or in your influence. And that's what he was telling me in that moment of where I could have said, the world I've failed, I could have left. But that ministry, the next week and the next week, it began to grow. In that ministry, I had men and women both come in to those classes and into my training area that I could not only meet their physical needs, but it gave me an openness to meet their spiritual needs. I was able to show them without words sometimes of who God was and that he loved them. But if I would have given into the world standard of what humiliation was and what failure looked like that I turned in and said, okay, I want nothing to do with it, then I don't think I would be here today. There is no way I'd be on this stage because he, God said to me, he goes, Linda, I need you to be able to get up in front of strangers and I need you to speak love and truth and let them know that I love them. And I need you to walk in a place where you can walk with that quiet confidence and speak boldly. So how do we stay humble? How does that happen? We live a life that is gracious and character driven. We live a life of conviction like Esther, where it was like, okay, we've crossed the line. We've got to do something. We have to do something. We live a life of listening, understanding instead of performing. We live a life that's grounded in love and service to our God and to others. And we live a life that is a daily surrender to stay humble and give up control. Let God lead us. What would our culture look like? What would the state of Minnesota look like? What would Apple Valley look like if we as Christians lived a humble life? What breakthroughs, what healings would happen if we would humble ourselves and be grateful for all that God's done and allow him to take control. And this has been on my heart for the last probably year. What would a revival look like if every person in this room began to come humbly and truly authentically love your neighbor and serve them? How does humility look like what does humility look like for you? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, sometimes we just need to take a deep breath and begin to surrender. So Lord, I'm asking right now that you would search our hearts, search our minds, help us to surrender everything, our dreams, our talents, our capacities, our control. God, I pray in this room 
that we would grasp that humility, yes, is a surrender and a service, but it's also a quiet confidence that you give us to be able to do and fulfill the things that you've given us to do. So Lord, I pray right now that you would open our hearts, open our minds to see the endless possibilities that are counter to our culture. What would our marriages look like? What would our friendships look like? What would our family look like? God, we give up control and we humbly ask, Lord, that you would spark in us a fire to see just a revival break out. Revive us in our spirit, Lord. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.